tonight. Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9 tonight. We were in Matthew chapter 7 last time. <clears throat> We've been reading back through the Gospels, just doing a kind of a flyover of some of these truths I'm finding as I'm reading back through the Gospels. Matthew chapter 9 tonight, I want to look at our next passage, take note of a few things before we pray together this evening. In the passage I'm asking you to turn to, Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, we find our Lord calling one of his chosen disciples out of the, the socially despised role of a tax collector and into our Lord's ministry and service. We find in the same paragraph the Pharisees reacting to and questioning Christ's mercy and his compassion for known and despised sinners. We also find our Lord's answer to their question that they ask when they, they challenge Him. He turn, in turn challenges them and their thinking as religious leaders. All of it takes place in five short verses. It's not a long text tonight. Matthew chapter 9, I want to start at verse 9. Let me read down through verse 13. Here's what we read here. As Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In this passage, we find three big ideas. I'm not going to try to spend a long time on any one of them, but I do want to run through these three thoughts with you tonight that we find here in the text. The first of these is the truth that our Lord calls the despised. Our Lord calls the despised. Secondly, I want you to see that our Lord loves the unlovely. And thirdly, I want you to consider that our Lord chides the religious. He chides the religious. Let's just take these thoughts one at a time tonight. So first of all, let's consider the fact that our Lord calls the despised. You all know well, we've talked about it here before, uh, you're familiar with the idea that in that day, tax collectors were despised by the Jews. Were hated. They were considered by their fellow Jews that they were sellouts to the Roman government. They were complicit in the, the subjugation of their own people. And this mindset of the fact that they were hated is actually uh, noted, it's demonstrated in our Lord's own words later in this very book. When he says to his church something that you're familiar with. In Matthew chapter 18, as he instructs us how to handle sinners among us and how to, th th those who sin against us. He says in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to, t- to, to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be. And now he says something that would have been very distinguishing to the people there. It would have been striking. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Because in their minds, there's no way he could be one of us. These aren't these are people that are, that, are, that, are, that are like us. And so the response of the heart when he hears this, let them be an outsider is what he's saying. Understand, they're, they're not among you. And he says to them, you need to understand something. There, there's, a, there, there's a response, there's a revulsion, as it were, from the Jews in that day to a tax collector. And in our text for tonight, the Lord actually called a tax collector... To be one of his disciples. We saw it in verse 9 when it tells us there, Jesus passed from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. I mean, this isn't like this was a tax collector off duty, right? This was a guy, he went by his house and said, I know what you do for a living, but I still want you to follow me. Now, he walked literally up to the guy in the middle of collecting taxes at the booth where taxes are collected. And he calls him right out of his job. Get up from that table, you thief among your people, and, and follow me. Stop following yourself. Stop following the Romans. You, you, you follow me. And truth be told, this call and Matthew's response are striking as you just read about it because you think about what, how, how many times had Matthew probably been called by his own people to leave that tax book? Maybe by his own family? How dare you shame us as, 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 to, to do such a thing? I mean, how many times had he probably felt the, the tug of his own heart? Should I really be in this place? Should I really be doing this thing? And yet he had resisted all those other urges to leave the tax booth. What Was it for income? We, we don't have the whole story here. But I can only imagine what that must have been like to be in his situation and to be hated every day by the people who come to the booth because of what you're doing. And now to be called by one to walk away from it all... And then just to get up and do it. I mean, in this passage, Jesus saw Matthew, it tells us. He called Matthew, and Matthew immediately rose and followed him. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any hesitation. He just gets up and he goes. Don't miss this. Matthew made no demands. He offered no excuses in the text. He simply got up, he left his job, and he followed Jesus. This is astounding. There aren't here promises made. Here's how you're going to feed yourself. This is how we're going to take care of you. In fact, we find both before and after this in the text, uh, as the story is told, Jesus says something to the effect of, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. So he's not calling him to riches. There's not some greater enticement for him to leave this lucrative business. This is why tax leaders were there. They, they They made good money doing it. There was no enticement here that was going to better his situation. And yet he gets up and he follows. In fact, what we read here in our text seems to be the norm for the way Jesus calls. You say, what do you mean? Well, I don't believe that Matthew is an outlier when it comes to those that Christ calls into his service. We said here, Matthew was despised. And we're like, well, not everybody's despised. 
you can still be cool and a Christian, right? We, can, we tend to think in, in, in terms like this. In fact, we live in a day when people go out of their way to make sure that you don't have to be odd to follow Jesus. You can keep everything you have, do everything you want, live however you please, and just say Jesus on Sunday and it's all good, right? It's, it's like you don't need to be despised to be a Christian. And yet, the Apostle Paul reminded the church at Corinth of the kinds of people Jesus calls. I don't think Matthew's an outlier. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. It means... It's not as if Jesus went walking through the palaces of this earth to call the people into his church. He says, no. What did he do? God chose what is foolish in the world. Because he wants to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world because he wants to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Because it's not about you, nor is it about me, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in himself. But that's what we try to do. I'm smart. I'm strong. I'm wise. I'm rich. I'm careful, I plan well, I, I, I've made something of myself. No, this is so that the one who boasts only boasts in the Lord. And so we hear the language that our Lord calls the despised. We don't need to think that that's like a one-off oddity and Matthew was on his own as an outlier. According to the Apostle Paul, God has chosen the ones that He's chosen as His own to serve Him in this world because He intends to get all the glory, not share it with us. We don't get the praise that's worthy only to Him. He's due. And yet it's so easy to think and I'll glorify God, but I want to get mine too. What does he say? He's chosen you and me. So at the end of the day, only he gets the glory. This is why our Lord chooses the despised. He calls the despised. But not only does our Lord call the despised, the text tells us as well here in Matthew chapter 9 that our Lord loves the unlovely. He loves the unlovely. The next verse of the text is quite striking to, to hyper-religious people in particular who are out of touch with the real world effects of sin and fallenness. Like they, just, they just don't really get how this works. 
In fact, look at the very next verse. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. They were, they were eating meals together and talking with one another in a, in, in a forum where people could see them. This didn't just happen behind closed doors. This didn't just happen in the secret places. No, this is somewhere that they could be seen and noticed. We, we all know, I think, that the practice of breaking bread together was considered a personal, intimate, even, even loving practice. It was a means by which fellowship took place within the early church. In fact, it's one of, the, one of the clear markers at the beginning of the church that the church was together and that they loved each other, that they broke bread together daily from house to house. They ate together. And it showed that they loved each other. You see, this cultural norm was certainly in play when the text tells us that our Lord ate with tax collectors and sinners. He welcomed them into his life. He wanted to be part of theirs. But here's what's amazing. The truth be told, the Pharisees did not misunderstand this. <laughs> they understood completely the significance of the Lord eating with sinners. And as far as they were concerned, Jesus shouldn't do that. Because they were the holy ones and would never deign to defile themselves by rubbing shoulders with the riffraff. By actually sitting at a table with the rabble. By ever being seen in some kind of intimate, loving fellowship conversation over a table, breaking bread with known sinners... Because, of course, the Pharisees were not sinners to their way of seeing it. They were the holy, and they wouldn't be defiled by the others that weren't like them. And it's interesting that in verse 11, the very next verse, we see this kind of offended, puritanical prudishness just oozing from them. When the Pharisees saw this, they, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he do this? He's supposed to be a teacher. Why would he ever risk his reputation like this? A little later in the book, King Jesus actually commented on this kind of indignation of theirs over such a situation. In fact, a couple of chapters later, chapter 11, verse 16, uh, Jesus speaking of his day said this, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and, and calling their playmates. We, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, Jesus said, and they said, he has a demon. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by her deeds. 
Notice how Jesus comments of the fact that when he was called a friend of sinners, though we cherish such a phrase, though we sing of such a phrase, though we give thanks for such a reality, a title like this, Jesus, a friend of sinners, because I need a friend like that. This was not how that phrase was introduced. It was cutting words. It was an accusation. Look at that friend of sinners. They spit the words as they said them. Who would want to be considered that? A friend of sinners? In these verses that we've just read here in chapter 11, King Jesus pictures the culture around him as a bunch of of spoiled children who will not be appeased by anything. Nothing makes them happy. They will not play regardless of the game that their their, their friends propose. They they will not dance. They will not mourn. In short, they will not be pleased no matter what is suggested to them. Nothing makes them happy. He gets real specific. He says, let's just let's let's talk. Let's just name some names. He says, he says, they, they didn't like the ministry of John. John the Baptist came, and as far as they were concerned, he was was too rough, he was too withdrawn, he was too isolated, he went without too much. His message and his style were far too stern. In fact, you look at John, the guy in camel's hair, and he ate locust and wild honey and hung out by the river and told people they were serpents. That guy had to have a demon in him to act like that. Clearly, the people of Jesus' day did not like John. They disliked him so much, in fact, that Herod had him imprisoned and would later kill him just for speaking the truth. Don't like him? We'll shut him up the first chance we get. Jesus acknowledges they didn't like John and they don't like me. Again, as far as they were concerned, he was was too indulgent. He was too gentle and too loving and too merciful. In short, he was too friendly with sinners. John didn't even want to talk to them, it seemed. John just preached harsh words. That's demonic language. Jesus actually loved them, and that was a problem for these men. He's too friendly with sinners. And so despised was Jesus that before long, this unappeasable culture would drag him before Pilate and scream for his execution. And once again, let's shut him up. Don't miss the final phrase of verse 19 there in the text. What's it say? Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Friends, it has to be understood that the the unfavorable repetition by the people that day, their their, their despising of John and the despising of Jesus said far less about John and Jesus than it did about the generation that was making the noise. I've often heard it said, if you're getting attacked from all sides, you're probably about where you ought to be. 
always astounding to me where anyone in leadership knows what it's like to have people on both sides of a debate that can't stand whatever you've done. If you're in the middle getting attacked from both sides, you're probably in a good place. It's pretty astounding here that it didn't matter if you were John or if you were Jesus, they hated you. It didn't say much about John or Jesus, it said a lot about them. Just think about it. Our, our Lord was clearly teaching that he and John would be vindicated in time. Oh, in this moment, we, we got names that are being dragged through the mud. Nobody liked John, nobody liked me. It's okay, we'll just wait. Time tells no lies. The Pharisees died, and besides being used as illustrations of what not to be, they've been forgotten. Jesus remains the King of kings and the Lord of lords. John and Jesus' deeds would prove the righteousness of their ministries. In time, the people who, who rejected them would be seen for what they truly were. Spoiled, unappeasable children who could not be placated. One way of restating the final phrase of this text here in chapter 11 is this, that wisdom is proved right by her actions. It's proved right. Oh, they criticize the actions, right? That weird guy in his strange clothing and nasty food who hangs out in the wilderness and tells people to repent. Well, of course he must have a de demon. Well, in time, his actions are proven to be wisdom. In much the same way, this Jesus who ate with sinners and was dragged through the mud by all the hyper-religious holy ones around him was proven to be right. Doing exactly what he had been sent by his father to do. My friends, this, I think, is a, a universal principle that wisdom will be proved right by her, her actions. You see, a truly wise person will act rightly regardless of how they are received by the wicked and the worldly culture around them. It doesn't matter what people say. If it's wisdom, you do it. Doesn't matter if people like it. Doesn't matter who agrees or disagrees. If it's wisdom in time, it will be vindicated. And if it's not in time, that will be seen as well. You see, this principle is as true as it ever was, friends. And according to our text, right here in chapter 9 and what follows in chapter 11, King Jesus was dismissed by the religious leaders of his day, at least in part because he loves the unlovely. He's the friend of sinners. Our Lord calls the despised. Our Lord loves the unlovely, but... Thirdly, and it flows right from what we've just considered, our Lord chides the religious. Let's follow this. Our Lord called a tax collector to be one of his 12 disciples. 
had a practice of welcoming notorious sinners into his fellowship and eating with them. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day were very quick to draw conclusions and to make slanderous accusations about Jesus and his followers. These defiled ones, these defiled people. The, the context of the passage is instructive. We didn't spend much time on that tonight, but I will, I will encourage you to, to note maybe on your own study at some point that the paragraphs that lead up to this particular passage, in those paragraphs, King Jesus had been healing people who were physically sick and diseased. One of the interesting markers of the way that Jesus healed often was not only that he healed them, but that he touched them. To heal them. You don't touch lepers in that day. You don't touch the defiled with issues of blood and so forth. Jesus touched the physically diseased. Healed. And simply put, what we find him doing throughout is he's identifying with the lowly, the, the rejects, the, the foreigners, the outcasts, the, the sick, and the, the despised of that day. How often do we find ourselves in situations where we think twice before we reach out with compassion? Eey, I don't want to be made dirty. I don't want to sit on that bench. I won't put my arm around that person. I can smell them from here. Why do I want to get any closer? I mean, how often do we find our own hearts responding to things that we, we don't find lovely? Jesus is doing the exact opposite in his ministry. He's reaching out. He's touching. He's handling. He's, he's welcoming. He's dining with. You see, he's not just doing this in, in the, the healing of the physically sick, but it should not surprise us if he did that with the physically sick that we find in our text for the, this evening that Jesus also had contact and also identified himself with those who were spiritually sick and diseased. If he touched those that would physically defile, it makes perfect sense and follows right in line that he would also identify with those that, that would have spiritual defilement for him. At least as the religious people of his day saw it. But his willingness to identify with, to touch, to be near the spiritually sick and diseased was an immensely shocking and troubling thing to the religious leaders of his day. They wouldn't do it. I mean, you remember the story of the, 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 um, the Good Samaritan? The one beaten and left. And what do what the religious ones in Jesus' story do? They go to the other side of this road to get away. They don't, they don't want to get anywhere near what might defile them. Never mind, is the man alive? Does he need help? Does he need healing? Forget it, I'm not touching that body. Jesus paints the picture plainly. In fact, they ask the disciples a, a loaded question in our text. Why does he do this? A number of years ago, I had a, a job. I was an assistant to a funeral director. 
I spent a lot of time when I was in grad school around death. There are plenty of stories that go with that. I'll save those for another time, but I will tell you that I remember one time, I think it was around Christmas, when I walked into the warehouse at our, our funeral home and my boss said to me, hey, there's a, there's a Lazy Boy recliner out there and it's yours if you want it. He said, go try it out. I walked out into the warehouse and I sat down on the chair and it was, it was comfortable, more comfortable than any chair I owned. He goes, you want it? I said, Sure. He goes, just so you know, a man died in that last night. I jumped up out of that chair. There's just something. You know, it's just like, whoa, what? He said, Joe, you, you deal with this your whole life. Like, this is what you do. He goes, literally, a man's wife bought that chair for him last week so that he might have the final hours of his life in comfort. Within about three days of the purchase, he passed away, and when I, when I went to pick up the body last night, she said, I, I've only known that chair for him at the end of his life. She said, I really don't want it in the house anymore. Would you take it with the body when you go? And so he loaded up the chair, and he took the body, and he brought it back to the warehouse, and he said, this is a multi-hundred-dollar chair. It's yours if you want it. And so for years, we had the death chair in our living room, and it was always interesting to invite guests to come and sit in the chair, and then at some point in the evening say, yeah, somebody died in that chair, and watch the same reaction. I get you jumping up out of the chair, like, whoa, what? Why? Because there's something in us that knows that we feel that contact with something that's touched something else that we think of as defiling might defile us. It gives us the heebie-jeebies, Right? We, we can joke when it's something physical like a chair. Like, it's, it's a chair. But what about when it's a soul? What are the souls, the lives, the people that you think, I just, I just, I just don't want to touch them. I just don't want to be around them. Certain parts of town, I just don't want to go there. Just certain countries, I just thought, I, I just would never want to be there. I just don't like that. I mean, there's something in our fallen hearts that does what they're doing in this text. Verse 11, we read it there, right? And when Jesus, or when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why is your teacher eaten? Drink with tax collectors and sinners. It's one of those, there's always a them, right? Why is he eating with them? And i got to ask us, who's the them for you? Who's the them for me? Jesus gave them his answer. He, he challenged them when he heard the question, those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, I came for them. 
That's why I'm here. And friends, this was so scandalous in that day. To the religiously minded Jew, they could not countenance such thinking. As far as they were concerned, no right-thinking person would be willing to risk being contaminated even by, in their reputation by contact with those who were considered unclean by the self-respecting so-called righteous people of that day. But that's why Jesus came. I mean, his words on this matter are unmistakably plain. He leaves no room for wondering. He did not come to make those who think they are well comfortable. You think you're well? I didn't come for you. I'm a doctor, and I came for the ones who know they're sick. He did not come to call the self-righteously respectable to himself. He came to call those that no one would welcome to himself. He came to call sinners. And to give his life a ransom for them. He even quoted the Old Testament here. He employed a common, well-known, often used phrase among the scholarly of that day. Like when someone was about to kind of teach on what a passage of Scripture meant, they would often begin what they were about to say with the phrase, go and learn what this means. And then they'd start to teach. They knew well. These were Pharisees. They knew what he was saying. You don't know your Bibles. You think you do, but you need to go and learn because you are teachers and you don't even know what you're teaching, is what he's saying. Hosea 6.6, God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In short, God was telling his people to stop hiding behind their religion. Stop hiding behind your religion. Stop stop using religious practices as a cover for hard-heartedness toward sinners. He called you to show mercy. He called you to show compassion. He called you to be like me, he says to his own. Let's face it, friends, our Lord's love for, his identification with, his ministry to the outcasts of society is still scandalous today. It makes us uncomfortable. That's why Carl Blomberg, writing about this passage, says, Many of us, like the Pharisees, at best ignore the outcasts of our society. And at worst, we continue to discriminate against them. Oh, we've got neater, kinder ways, we think, to say it and do it. But are they welcome here? Do we eat with them? Do we let them into our lives? Do we want to be in theirs?
Truth be told, there are many would-be disciples who would like to believe that they are willing to pay any cost of deprivation, right? I'll follow Jesus for the sake of Christ. I'll, I'll do anything. In fact, just back in chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man is not where to lay his head. We think, well, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll suffer anything for Jesus. I'll do without anything for Jesus. But hear me, friends, far fewer, it seems, are willing to pay the price of rejection or of scandal that comes from identification with Christ when it comes to loving and handling and being around sinners as we see it. I'll give up some money, but I won't give up my reputation. Do you know what my family would say if I... You know what my neighbors would think if I... Do you know what my brothers and sisters in Christ in my church would think if I actually brought somebody like that here? Brothers and sisters, there is something about being called to sacrifice our reputations for the spread of the gospel and the glory of Christ that keeps many people who say they would follow Jesus from actually following Jesus. Because those who are like Jesus find the hyper-religious looking at them going, why do you do that? Why would you go there? Why would you give away that? Why would you love them? And this, I believe, is why our Lord chides the religious. I was reading through this short text again. I was, was challenged. Because, friends, I believe we need to go to prayer tonight. And when we do, we need to go to prayer as those who confess, hear me, who confess that we are the despised ones that He's called. Pray as those who confess that we are the unlovely ones that he has loved. See, here's the problem. The whole mindset of a passage like this, that the hyper-religious think that the unlovely ones are all out there. The despised ones are all out there. The point of the text is no. That's talking about us. He's loved us. He's welcomed us to his table. Who are we to look down on another and think, well, they're the ones who need compassion and mercy as if somehow we didn't and we don't. We are the despised ones he has called. We are the unlovely ones that he has loved. And friends, we are the religious ones that he is chiding. Isn't it amazing how we can be kind of the brunt of all of that in a text? And my question is, do we see that about ourselves? Do I? And do you? And if so... 
what will we do with it? So tonight, I want us to pray that God would open our eyes to see those truths and to walk in them. Okay? Let's pray like that.